Tonight on Arena, Alice Troughton on her new film The Lesson, A Modern Day War, and new albums from Ash, Mick Flannery and Mitski up for review. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena. The nature of art and the nature of monstrous men lie at the heart of the feature debut from director Alice Troughton and her film The Lesson. The always charismatic Richard E. Grant stars as literary giant J. M. Sinclair. Into his world arrives a young tutor, Liam Summers, played by our own Daryl McCormick. Liam is employed to help Sinclair's son Bertie prepare for his Oxford admission into but McCormick's character has literary ambitions of his own and plans to make the most of his time in the orbit of this great writer. He also must grapple with the strange family dynamic presided over by Sinclair's wife, Helene, played by Julie Delpy. Questions of class and ambition imbue this film, as does the thorny issue of where inspiration really comes from. The lesson is a film noir thriller, of sorts. And when I spoke to Alice Troughton recently, I began by asking her about how she set about approaching the noir genre in a new way. Well, we'll be looking for a sort of 21st century version of it because obviously the big period of noirs was in the 1940s and 50s with the Hayes Code still present and that's when they had the heyday. So we were very interested to look at what's become classic noir and how that can sort of be updated and maybe be revised. But really it was generated by the thriller nature of the story. Um, which is a bit of a page turner, and uh, and that's where uh, the whole concept came from. The bosom of my writer, Alex McKeith. Yeah, and and because it is a, a page turner, there are lots of plot twists and turns that we have to be careful about. But I suppose mm. if we if we give a sense of the family dynamic of the Sinclairs, <laughs> they, they are quite Absolutely. the bundle of people, aren't they? They really are. So our story begins with a young ambitious wannabe writer who's played by the rather marvellous Daryl McCormack um, and he arrives into the house to tutor the young son of a writer that's world-renowned, famous, one of Liam's uh, favourite writers but who is having a writer's block and that's where the dynamics start from. So, And in the household, there's there's an undercurrent of grief. There's been a tragedy. And so there, it, it's a fairly toxic mix. Interestingly enough, though, you've mentioned um, the father, you've mentioned the son, and you've mentioned the visiting writer played by, as you said, the wonderful Darren McCormick, who we can claim as one of our own. Um, you haven't mentioned Julie Delphi's character in the midst of all of that. And she's so important to the whole thing. And I think so important to what you wanted to do in this film. That's right. And, and, and Julie, uh, who's obviously one of our best-known actresses, and came to this role um, because there is such an unexpected twist at the end and that involves her character. And, but uh, in, in, in Noirs, the femme fatale, or the maman fatale, as Julie is playing, um, is so often peripheral. And what we took really great pleasure in doing is bringing that character from from the sides into the centre stage. So that's a process that happens throughout the film. I'm being enigmatic, yes. only because I don't want to uh, spoil the ending. Absolutely, no, and I, I understand that. But it, it is that, I suppose, that the, the role and the central part of, the, of that Julie Delphi character is so vital to, to the story that you're telling. But you're also telling the story of a horrendous man here, a horrendous yeah. writer, um, played by the... Beautiful, Richard E. Grant. Um, Sinclair is Sinclair 
do you think of him as a monster? Can we think of him in that way? Well, I think a combination of, uh, well, uh, maybe midlife crisis and work failure and uh, the sort of success turning to dust in his ashes has turned somebody who you uh, you think would have been once charismatic and vital and been part of a, a very successful creative partnership into quite an isolated, monstrous and ego-driven uh, character who who is destructive to the people around him, as so often these kind of creative monstrosities monstrous egos are um, but it's an evolution from somebody who once was very fated and uh, and successful so Richard knows the world very well and I think he does a wonderful job Average writers attempt originality but the greats great writers steal But your personal life seeps into your work if you're asking whether my son's death has inspired my writing, the answer is no, I will not be writing about his death. I will be writing in spite of it. He manages to be both horrible and hilariously funny as well at times. Mm. I presume that, that, that you would say is within the script as well. Well, it is. And uh, the chemistry that Daryl and Richard had on set playing their two characters and they have a lot of interactions was uh, so brilliantly tense and funny. It was very much the old stag, young stag, competitive nature going on both in the script and, and with the actors too, possibly slightly, because, you know, they're both superstars in their own right. Um, so, yeah, it was a really interesting dynamic to explore. Surely you're not suggesting to me that there were two monstrous egos on, on a film set battling with each other. Not at all. I would say that they're two very talented actors uh, who uh, tested and probed the other person um, so that the performances are as elevated as they are and they're, they're both brilliant in it. They really enjoyed working together and they really lit, lit up the floor when they were sparring. So I think it gave everybody a lot of great creative satisfaction. Mm. The other aspect, I suppose, of the, of the Richard E. Grant character um, is this idea, the debate around can the great artist be a great human being as well or is it inevitable that the great artist is a, a nasty human being? That debate is in there as well. Was that to the fore in your mind? Yeah, but with a different, with a slightly different twist, because I think we know that people can be great artists and, and, and not be toxic. Uh, I think it is... A question that's been sort of bothering people for a while now, which is what do we do with the creative art of monstrous men? And I'm thinking about well, the recent discoveries about Picasso and people like Eric Gill, who obviously his whole statues and life work are being um, re-looked at. And, and it's whether the art, it can still be enjoyed if you know that it comes from a place of cruelty and toxicity and and I think that's a question that, that we've been looking at you know for a few years now. You mentioned um, the idea of Daryl McCormick and Richard E. Grant almost sparring against each other on, on set uh, as actors in, in a positive way obviously. Mm. You know there's a, mon there's a monster within Daryl McCormick's character Liam Summers as well. There's definitely what I would call a cuckoo storyline happening in Liam's head, actually, in mm. the character's head. I think he, with that sort of hunger and ambition that uh, <laughs> that a young man can bring to the table, um, I think he feels that he's entitled 
to write a great novel and to be in the position that Sinclair is in, um, which obviously Sinclair doesn't share. Mm. So he's playing a, a sort of cuckoo storyline, but that's only in his head. And really, when we uh, end up at the end of the film, Liam has learnt, if I can be a bit on the nose about it, Liam has learnt a very big lesson <laughs> um, and his life has been changed forever, actually. Um, what about class? How? What role do you think that plays in the story you're telling in the lesson? Yeah, it plays a really big role, and it was one of the things that, again, really attracted me to the project, which is, you know, the 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 the, the idea of sending your children away to boarding school, the idea of people within their social structures, uh, the sort of death by a thousand cuts of uh, social etiquette. That, that I think is quintessentially English. Um, obviously, other societies share aspects of that, but really it comes to a really um, kind of strong head in, in England and in English cu- class culture. And that was really interesting to explore um, the way that anything could be weaponised, mm. whether it's wearing the wrong shirt or using the uh, or not knowing the music that's playing. Uh, that that felt really, really vital to explore that, in fact. Yeah, and yet yeah, Daryl himself is Irish and he plays his, his character, Liam Summers, he even has an Irish feel to the name, Liam Summers. He plays it with an Irish accent. Mm. Was that part of your consideration? Yeah, I mean, Daryl was the part and, and really, you know, owned it. And so uh, the part was, we were always going to be kind of flexible with the right character. But I think that what uh, Daryl has said previously in interviews, and of course my actors are on strike at the moment, so they're not doing interviews about Mm. um, the project. Um, What Daryl has said is that he really understood that idea of being an outsider and of having to come in and and prove himself. That was something that he's experienced. um, And so it really resonated with him. Yeah, I wonder, are all British dinner tables as toxic as the dinner tables of, of now, the Sinclair sure, family? have been at a few. Have you been at a few? Do you <laughs> well, I don't have to, I've not been at one that toxic, to be honest. <laughs> oh, well, we hope not, obviously. And we are a drama and at points we're a melodrama, which is where the old noir <laughs> came from. The old noirs were actually melodramas. Yeah. Um, and and uh, I I would say that what we're showing is a, hopefully a slightly heightened reality, but I don't think so. I think yeah, I, I think there is a savagery to and a way that you are cut down if you're getting above your station <laughs> in the classic phrase. <laughs> and uh, we see that happening on screen, but uh, what that creates in people is a feeling that, that stirs revenge, I think, and mm-hmm. I, it really does happen with our characters. So uh, what did you two study today? Hamlet, for the most part. Oh, you looked into the manuscript edition yet? I've got uh, a few articles. Mm. I can make up a reading list. Thanks. You can thank him when you get in. If. If you get in. We should have a chat about the lesson, see how it went. Well, I'm sure Bertie has not I'm been. sure he does. Which is why we'll discuss it after dinner. You can wait in the drawing room when you're finished eating. Liam. You're out. Just one final question on that noir aspect and, and on the film, if I, if I might, Alice. The location okay. is extraordinary, I have to say. Oh, yes, and I suppose you. in the classic noir, you often have the house up on the hill that's isolated from the rest of the community. Yeah. But this is a magnificent house in its own grounds. And the amount of nature 
that that you film within yeah. this. There are no, you know, there are no blinds giving us shadowy lights across a black and white screen. This is a very different style of noir filming. Yeah, I mean, actually, I mean, because again, I'm going to get into trouble about the use of noir. I might should maybe say noirish. Um, <laughs> you know, noir has really evolved since the days of the Hayes Code, and and we have neo noir, we have urban noir, um, and this as somebody called the sunlit noir, and that was exactly what I and the DP Anna Patarakina wanted to achieve was the idea of uneasiness and tension sometimes murderous intentions under a beautiful with a beautiful surrounding and with with a dappled sunlight and so that you get those contradictions and um yeah i think it 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 helps actually some ways it makes it more exposed and i think that's that we always wanted that for the last third of the film so i hope we've achieved it thanks so much for speaking with us this evening alice no problem sean lovely to speak to you That's Alice Troughton, uh, the director of The Lesson. The Lesson goes into cinemas this weekend and we'll be reviewing it on Thursday night's arena. Not everything I said I did, I did in fact. Not literally. But if it wasn't all true, it was true-ish. Those are lines from the poem Border Control, part of a new collection from poet Peter Sir. The collection is called The Swerve. Delighted to have Peter with me in studio this evening. Um... So I'm wondering then, Peter, with that particular uh, kind of little caveat that you give us in Border Control, is everything I'm reading in The Swerve Kind of truish, or kinda, totally kinda, true. Kinda, kind of truish. I mean, I think so. I mean, or you know, as, as true as as true as I suppose a poem can 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 be in a way. I mean, the swerve is kind of a. I mean, somebody was saying to me, you know, um, you know, you had a book called Sway, and I have a book called Swerve. So what's, what's with all this kind of unsteadiness? You think, mm. but 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 in a way, like I do a lot of kind of swerving in and out of time and 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 and, and memory and so on. So I mean, and, and that poem itself is. Um, it's a memory of a particular kind of occasion. And a, yeah, this and a, is the, the title poem. The title the poem. Sure, should, yeah. Tell us about the event in your, in your childhood, sure, which obviously sure, sure, sure. really stayed very clear in your memory in some ways. Well, it did. I suppose it, come, I mean, it comes out of the fact my father died pretty young and he got he got ill kind of very young as well. So he got he got this kind of neurological kind of disease, a bit like multiple sclerosis, mm. kind of about 40. And then he was dead by kind of 50. And I suppose that was kind of the major kind of event of our of our young um lives but this particular poem comes out of it was, it's a it's a, an occasion that was how he's from county galway and there was one christmas where my mother who who had to drive a bit nervously from dublin to to you know a skiddy kind of icy christmas down to his parents or his 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 mother's farm in county galway and then the whole family was kind of gathered there and there was music and a big kind of feast you know and but it was it was in a in a way it was a kind of a sad occasion as well because we used to go there every summer we used to love going to the farm and and you know we myself and my sister at the time we'd kind of spend three months of every year in you know in in yeah. in Galway and that was the big event but this was slightly different because it was winter and it was it was associated with the 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 illness and it was so it was kind of happy and sad at the same time and so the yeah. poem is really. It's kind of like it's 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 a memory of a drive as as, as well, and it's it's funny because we're just back from Italy where we were driving around in this in this kind of Fiat five hundred with end in the back, um, saying decades of the rosary, we wouldn't crash. <laughs> Your wife went away, and this is because my mother kind of swerving the the car nearly crashed somewhere near somewhere near uh, somewhere in, in County Meath, 
And so there's that kind of thing as well. And my grandfather had, had, had been the only sort of driver in the area. So he was literally the mm. only man with a car and that car was still rusting in the in the field outside. So was, all that kind of stuff came into all, it as, all, as, all as, makes as well. All makes its way into yeah. it. And, uh, you know, and, and, and that idea of the swerve, it has so yeah. many other kind of connotations yeah, and sure. meaning it as well. It's a lovely open kind yeah. of title for, yeah. Yeah. for the collection. However, right, the, it's quite a long poem, the sure, swerve, yeah, but yeah. right next to the swerve, is another memory poem and yeah. not not unlinked to no. the swerve in that it's dealing with the, the same part of your life or the same area, yeah, the same geographical area, certainly. Or at least certainly, yeah, it's, 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 it starts there with, with uh, again, going down to the farm. I used to meet my grandmother in, in Athlone, and it's a kind of saying, like a nine-year-old. Mm. Nine and the first thing she'd do is she'd take me to the hotel and she'd give me a glass of Guinness and I'd be there hating the stuff but loving the fact that I must be a, a really important grown-up man now of nine, of nine you know. And, and so, you, would and you so manage the full I'd, glass? I'd, I'd manage the, I'd manage the glass just about. And that would be and that would, at nine, and I'd, and I'd feel great then, you know. <laughs> so it kind of starts with there, and it kind of proceeds, I suppose, um, you know, from from that. But yeah, it's called ages. What am I? Ten. The train crosses the sparkling river. In a hotel across from the station, my grandmother hands me a glass of stout. My lips are black with summer. What am I, 15? We've walked the length of the city and must have talked forever. But all that's left of desire is the peach I bought her just here. What am I, 25? The ice hangs in the trees. The skaters race through the towns. On the balcony, beyond the stuck door, my frozen lives wait for the thaw. What am I, 59? The sun streams in on the table, where all of us are feasting, expectant as apostles, on the last of the bread, the last of the wine. What am I? A hundred and three? The cold air plays on the earth. If someone should think of me, a blade of grass will stop in its tracks, a leaf curl in mid-flight. And that's Peter Sir reading his poem Ages from his new collection, The Swerve. And, and uh, Peter, what, what I find interesting within all of that is this idea of it's a bit like the truish bit in in the in the uh, border control poem that I quoted from at the top of the item. You're you're talking here about having a memory at 103. There's a fair bit of poetic license in both of those, isn't there? <laughs> being truish and having be, a memory be, from truish. 103. This is it. This is it. I mean, it's, I mean, it, it is that kind of in, 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 mm. in invention, I suppose. Yeah, but literal truth is never any 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 fun, I suppose. Yeah, and and, and uh, the other side of it is it is the literal truth that you were allowed to drink the glass of yes. Guinness at the age of nine. I don't think that would be um, allowed in the <laughs> contemporary society. I, I suppose don't think so. I don't think yeah. I don't think we would condone it, perhaps <laughs> at this point in time. But the, the what what struck me about the nature of those memories is how a bit like the swerve. You had a, a a near accident yourself that you, and that was what swerved you off into those memories. In the writing of the po- of a poem, mm. is that how it works? Kind of, you, you think you're starting on one thing, but you're swerved off, or you're ve- you veer off in a new direction without even knowing it's happening. Yeah, I think I, I think it was um, well, a number of poets have said that, have said that kind of thing. That poetry tends to be more of a an investigation, and it's, it's never a question of sitting down with a very concrete idea, and, you, and, you're, and you're just going to put that into mm. verse. You start off with something, and you do actually, you do kind of swerve into something else, and then something, you know, and then something else, um, another memory is jogged, or you kind of, 
you know, you, you, you end up, you, the, the destination is never very predictable. You don't quite know where you're going to go. And, and to me, when if, if I'm reading a poem, that's always a great thing. The thing I look for is, is that kind of bit of surprise at the end, that, you, that you're on a journey and you can't necessarily predict, you know, where the destination mm. is, where, where, where you're going to end up. I wonder what the starting point was for a poem like Proofs, which becomes, it, it's a very yeah. contemporary kind of commentary in many ways. Did it start out as that? You're talking about you, the yeah. war in Ukraine here in many ways. Well, I suppose, yeah. I mean, in, in a way, it would be nice if you could isolate yourself in your kind of, you know, ivory tower and, 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 and live that mm. kind of imaginative life where the, the real world doesn't intrude, but the real world is there. And, and I suppose you feel that you have some kind of response or or even responsibility towards it. So yes, this, that poem came out of just, I suppose, all, all of the stuff that was happening around the war in Ukraine, but also this notion that even, even under that sort of attack and constraint, you know, there were still celebrations going on. There was still people having parties in mm. bus shelter or in, in, in underground shelters in Kiev. There was still, you know, birthday parties and there was still people trying to play musical instruments. There's the story of a woman who was trying to play a piano in her house and refused to leave no matter how, how dangerous it was. So it kind of came out of that. And then that notion of, because people always ask that question, what use is poetry or what use is art in a time of distress or, or crisis? So I suppose... I was trying to answer that kind of thing as, mm. as, as well. Let's hear the poem. Yeah, sure. Proofs. It's not enough, I know that. Stops nothing. Holds off not a single missile. Mutes no tyrant. The ice loosens, the rockets strike. Sunlight pours into, into the debris as it blazed on yesterday's walls. Everything happens as it always does. Darkness falls where shrouded statues haunt the squares. In the military hospital, a cold hand pins medals on the terrified. The soon-to-be-dead are lost in the wood. And still I reach for the projectors whirring in the underground, balloons on a pillar where the party insists. The pianist who, even under fire, will not give up and run for cover. She should. It won't save her. No one can count how the spirit burns. No algorithm moves to offer succour. No actual evidence turns on the future. The ice breaks off. The rockets fall. The fearful cities wait. And yet it matters how, by her blown-out windows, as the sirens blare and neighbours flee, with what quiet fury she brushes the ashes off the keys and sits down to play. Peter Sir with his poem "Proofs" from his new collection, "The Swerve." I think Peter, and and I mean, when I when I hear you reading that poem, it's so focused on that person or that woman, I believe it was, yes. who insisted on playing her piano. It's so yes. focused on her and what she is doing. Did you have some kind of qualms thinking, "Have I a right to write I about did. this?" Of course I did. Of course I did. And I think I, in, in a way, I have absolutely no right to write about something that hasn't kind of directly happened to me. I mean, I'm not in that situation, so Mm. so it's an act of kind of privilege in a way. So I think what I was trying to do was not so much write about the experience of of war, but of the kind of persistence and, you know, endurance of the, 
human spirit and the refusal to kind of lie down under that. And I suppose mm. the insistence um, of the right to, to make art um, as, as, as well, even in that extreme circumstance. And that was, you know, the account of this woman um, covered in, in, mm. in dust and, and, and sitting still down. Playing. Like, still playing. Still playing. And, and, One know. final poem I might ask you to tell me a little bit about, because I just love the story here. It's called Talking to the Birds. Oh, yeah. The, the story of a woman. Was this a story you came across in the New York Times yourself? Yeah, no, I, I, I did. No, I was just read, I just read, I, you know, I was just reading the, the New York Times and there was an account of... Um, the, the writer who, who who met a woman in 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 the of the Boa tribe on the Andaman Islands, and she died in two thousand and ten. But in her final years, she used to speak a lot with the birds because there was no one around uh, left who spoke her her language. And so that was so, so yeah, stru- I was so just, struck look, by that. Look, yeah. But it, it it struck me as well as I read that poem. I I wondered about parallels with the poet's life in in yeah. that respect. Not that you're speaking to the birds, but is there <laughs> is there a kind of is there a sense of that you will speak what you have to speak, whether people are listening or not. To go back to what it yeah. says in your in your proofs poem sure. about look, you know, I know I know this isn't going to stop the missiles, but I'm writing it anyway. Yeah. I think I, I think that's true. I mean, I suppose it's it's, it's true of any kind of art, and mm. but it's also true of any kind of human act of communication. Nothing was, you know, you know, we are we are human, and we have that inbuilt human need to communicate, no matter what the circumstance, no matter if no one's listening, you know, if no matter how alone we we, we actually are. Still, if if the birds are listening, isn't if the it birds, plenty, <laughs> isn't it plenty <laughs> to be talking to them? Peter, thanks so much for coming into us this evening. That's Peter, sir. Peter speaking to us about his new collection, The Swerve, which is published by Gallery Books. And so to album reviews. Yes, not usually on a Monday that we have our album reviews, but of course we had our Dublin Theatre Festival special on Friday evening, so we put our albums into Monday evening for this week, or was it last week at any rate. So first up will be American singer-songwriter Mitski Mayawaki, or simply Mitski, for her legions of devoted fans, hailed by The Guardian last year as the best young songwriter in the United States. In fact, also last year she picked up an Oscar nomination for Best Original Song, This Is A Life, from the film Everything, Everywhere, All At Once. Seventh studio album is called The Land Is Inhospitable and So Are We. Next, acclaimed Irish singer-songwriter Mick Fannery, who we welcomed to Arena a couple of years ago when he released a magnificent collaboration with Susan O'Neill. That was an album called In The Game. Today, it's album number eight from The Corkman. It is called Good Time Charlie. And finally, Northern Irish band Ash, founded over 30 years ago, exploded into the UK alternative music scene with their 1996 debut, which was confusingly called 1977. It featured memorable songs or singles like Girl From Mars and Oh Yeah, songs still regularly played, has to be said on Irish Radio in 2023, to throw in another number for you. Today, album number eight arrives. It's called Race the Night. Sarah Hedeman, Eamon Sweeney have been listening. Let's start with the one I suspect our reviewers are most excited about, Mitski. The Land is Inhospitable and So Are We is the rather long album title. This is how it opens. the opening section of Bug Like an Angel opening track on The Land Is Inhospitable and so are we new album from Mitski 
It's quite a, 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 a what's the word I'm looking for when you really challenge, not challenge, is it quite a, an ambitious opening track? That's the word I was searching for. It is Monday night. It's quite an ambitious opening uh, way to open an album, that, uh, Zara. And a strangely subdued, mm. ambitious uh, way to do it. And I think uh, fans would have been quite shocked by how different the opening of this album was compared to her previous uh, six other albums, I myself included, um, mm. because her previous she's done like pop punk and she's done kind of synth pop and I was really excited actually when I got into this first song hearing that 17 piece choir just you know elevating the tone because it is a much sparser album from her and it also I do feel it's her loneliest album in certain ways where she's talking quite Mm. a lot about being lonely and being alone but it's not necessarily a, a woe is me loneliness. Yeah, it's not as done as that sounds. Yeah, but yeah. very interesting as well. And something that I really like about her albums is how she's able to really uh, bring you places and then kind of jump the ship and go somewhere yeah. completely unexpected, okay. like with that choir. And she does that quite a lot here. Um, uh, comparisons with Taylor Swift and the Swifties, she, um, Mitski also has a, a legion of very devoted fans. Do they have a... Absolutely. They have a name. Uh, they have uh, a, not Mitskyites, maybe <laughs> I perhaps. Um, I think to make listeners very, very clear, this sounds as you've just heard nothing like Taylor Swift. No, really, in in no. any any way. That's where it begins and ends. And I suppose, if anything, on this album, um, for reference point, I'm struggling to get one of Lee Hazelwood. I kind of think, in a way, vocally, uh, in terms of the ideas and kind of the the, the sonic embellishment. There's just so many different ideas in just over half an hour. Uh, possibly Father John Miss, uh, Misty and I believe she uh, shares Drew Erickson uh, with jo- Father John Misty on orchestral arrangements. The one thing I will say kind of about that 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 track and that kind of family thing coming in, mm. I did find th- its impact wore off a little bit on repeat listenings. A little bit, a bit like Father John Misty's board in the USA where there's this amazing, very innovative use of candle after. Mm. But having said that... Um, it's quite a remarkable album that I find very hard to pin down, but I'm really enjoying very much. And I know that we, we played I Don't Like My Mind in full earlier in the programme, and I know that was one of the standout tracks for you, mm-hmm. Eamon. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And actually, to be kind of some, you know, kind of on a lyrical level, tying in her mental health with her work mm. and her job and just talking about this cake, there's a lot of kind of surreal flights of fa- fantasy but anchored back yeah. kind of like about these kind of themes that lo- loneliness that You thing. touched on that yeah. Sarah, earlier on mentioning her, her ability with lyrics and that mm. the lyrics always merit listening to absolutely because she is one of these artists who is prides herself on existing in a kind of elusive state and I do find then that with her albums I am listening so much more attentively to what she's saying because there I feel she is telling me what I do need to know what I do need to be let in on and as Eamon said there you know you have lyrics about how important music is and sometimes when she talks about relationship kind of Mm. romance lingo I often kind of feel that the strength of that actually also can relate to her relationship with music like with her on I Don't Like My Mind where she says so please don't take my job away from me she blasts music out and she can talk as well quite often about you know a figure who is romantically linked to her but never really delves too far into it and what I also like is she flourishes that with then these really sensory striking images of you know bending like a willow or even like simple things like a cold coffee like you can taste that you know yeah. how mm-hmm. that tastes and feels mm-hmm. so she's very good at bringing you into this world and or a one more title like star which could be referred to so many things let's have a listen to a little bit of that song
ago, a little section of Star from uh, Mitski and her new album, The Land is Inhospitable, and so are we. There's a track after that, by the way, called I'm Your Man. I thought, oh, she did a Leonard Cohen cover, but no, there's dogs barking and all sorts of things. On. <laughs> Nothing got to do with Leonard Cohen, Cohen rather. So, Stars from You for Mitski and her new album, Eamon Sweeney. I enjoyed it very much, and I will go three and a half. You'll go three and a half. Um, Zara? I thought this was one of her best albums to date and I loved how the two songs that we heard don't even give a full representation of the album. Yeah. So for me, it's a four and a half because it's so accomplished. Right. Very accomplished. So accomplished and not to put words in your mouth. That's from Zara and four and a half stars. Let's move on to album number two. Uh, trio of guitarist and singer Tim Wheeler, bassist Mark Hamilton, drummer Rick McMurray, collectively known as Ash, formed a full 31 years ago in 1992. Enduring friendship, musical collaboration has brought us its studio albums over those years, including their current offering, Race the Night. This is the title and opening track. the night opening and title track from the new album from Ash Eamon um, the delight in your face even when we said we were going to be talking about Ash was um, something to behold yeah you go back a long way with this band don't you go back I I think I first saw them supporting Alaska in 1995 that's nearly 30 years ago which is kind of and because they're that quintessential kind of teen band or maybe because they always have that youthful energy, or maybe because there's something about Peter Pan like about Tim Wheeler. I find it just astonishing that they've done eight albums, but it's also depressing because I think we've all got old, particularly me. Uh, anyway, yes, it does make me reconnect a bit, I suppose, with my youthful guitar power punk trio loving self, and um, that's why I do kind of like it a lot. And with a couple of weird curveballs in there as well. All right. So I, I said I said that their first album in 1992 was called 1977. What year would you put on this album? 20, made in 2023, oh, Zara. About 1994. <laughs> <laughs> would you? Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. It, now, hold on a minute. Nostalgia um, and, and uh, wearing your influences on your sleeve, all yeah. of those things. Not necessarily a bad thing to be a bit retro. Not at all. And I do have to say that the nostalgia element too, it did actually do a bit of a job to win me over for the opening kind of three or four songs in this. Mm. And I did actually get caught up in the energy of the rock riffs. But then you get something like Oslo where they shift tempo and try and do a bit of a, a sparser melody. And who's singing? Is it, that features Demera, is it? Demera, yeah. yeah. And it just becomes a little bit cinematic in a very schmaltzy straight like to streamers kind of rom-com like that song you hated it too I, I think. yeah I'd agree yeah. Yeah. Like that song. but the further the further it went on I just kind of felt that the nostalgia actually just beca- became quite dated and then everything came not throwback but a bit throwaway for me <laughs> so um, how did you feel about Crashed Out and Wasted Eamon? I loved it Really kind of weird that they're also doing such a long song. It's about six and a half minutes long. It is. Um, you know, sometimes some Ash songs in the past used to be probably about 90 seconds or so. Um, and just the fact that it's synths and it's very dream poppy and kind of like a bit kind of psychedelic and kaleidoscopic. Yeah. Very different from okay, the Okay, very Ash different. And, and, and lyrically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not a lot of variety, it has to be said, for the first few minutes. <laughs> well, you know, if you've got a good line or a good title, you might as well just repeat it ad nauseum sometimes. 
<laughs> yeah, there we go. Crashed out, wasted. Let us not be too cynical. Um, so, did that bring you back to Saturday? Because all I can think of is that that's some Saturday morning in my 20s I might have said I was crashed out and wasted. Not sure that it kind of holds up now, does it? Yeah, well, look, have Ash really written great lyrics any time in their career like you know I suppose that's not what the songs Mars, are about you would say yeah it's it's really just about a big sound a big noise now that's kind of somewhere in between mm. I like it because it's just something a bit different in the Ash Cannon you know it's not doing reinventing the same old pop punk thing over and over and over again right okay so stars from you what are you saying uh, Eamon I'll go four you're going yeah. four on that and what are you saying uh, Zara I think they had a bit of an identity and time crisis here. And for me, it was a two. Oh, actually, before we go off, there were two songs that you particularly wanted to talk about. (laughs) Peanut Brain and Brain Dead. What was it that struck you about those song titles, Sarah? Um, The the lyrics again to that. Peanut Brain, I truly admire the workings of your peanut brain, which is actually remarkable considering that Tim Wheeler did win an Ivor Novello Award for Shining Light. Yeah. Uh, Brain Dead as well. Brain Dead, I'm calling you Brain Dead. There's some expletives in there that we can't. I think in fairness that Ivor Novello is for the song as opposed to the lyrics on a page which a lot of the time do look ridiculous you know there's no denying it okay stars from you Zara oh two a two a two and what did you say again Uh, I got four double 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 there you go isn't a difference of opinion a great thing let's move on to Good Time Charlie it's studio album from Cork's Mick Flannery first release on the record label of the late John Prine let's have a listen to this is the opening track yes Neon Tonight please don't bother me I've got work to do I'm working on this box I'm working on a tune And I need to be alone For I can be with you Be on tonight Be on tonight Neon tonight, opening track there on McFlannery's new album, Good Time Charlie. And it's it's pretty much that album sets the, the tone, or that song rather, Zara sets the tone for the album. It's a signature McFlannery sound. How would you describe that signature McFlannery sound? Well, I would say that this has kind of evolved ever so slightly. It does have the kind of after hours Tom Waitsiness mm. to it. But actually, I found that the Tom Waits solitude after hours thing has been swapped for more of an energetic Van Morrison or even Cat Stevens kind of 70s feel to it and it's funny actually that song opens with the line please don't bother me I've got work to do and I always when I listen to Mick Flannery imagine him as a very solitary figure in his Mm. work but he's hugely collaborative down to the accomplished musicians that he carries over in his work to this he has three uh, features of Valerie June Tiana Mm -hmm. Esperanza and Inez Mitchell who he's worked with quite a lot and of course, is it the big the, the big um, recent um, album in the game with Susan O'Neill was Absolutely. a big collaboration yes. as well. Absolutely. So I would say, and as well, I think something he said that he wanted to do with this album was to allow the band to kind of explore. Um, making the arrangements a bit bigger and you do actually get that sometimes and yeah. I do think a lot of the time it can work but I think ultimately that experimentation has maybe made for an album that's slightly too long. Yeah, because I, I, I think we were all saying it, it's for, it's a 14-track album yeah, yeah. and at around 11 and 12 I was listening happily but it's amazing how an extra two songs can take an awful lot does. out of you. Absolutely, yeah. You kind of reach that point and get like that, that, that track Young which is fantastic yeah. and it's kind of like towards the end 
And it kind of feels like kind of quite climactic and it's got blends in these beats and strings and there's this great sense of drama. And you're kind of a bit exhausted after listening to it. I think, oh, what, there's more? I also think there's maybe a little bit too many kind of like duets and collaborations from yeah. different people. And yet, I think me. when I listened to those, I think there are three or four across the album, I thought, well, which one would you lose? And it's very hard to know which one you'd lose. I Minnesota. know which one, yeah, I Minnesota. Minnesota. So you would have yeah. just lost Minnesota, would you? Uh, okay. Yeah. That I was like just, that. Yeah, that song to me just didn't really fit because it's very much I felt from Anais Mitchell's perspective and point of view and her experience of being an American citizen and her relationship. That says a lot to, about Mick Flannery and his facility know, to, you know, collaborate and hand over the reins. I know, but pr- I think the, uh, the song would have worked more on one of her albums or right. as a standalone single because in the context, it, for me anyway, it didn't work. Okay, and it well, was you're both you're both in accordance on uh, in accord on that one. You did mention the track Young and how mm. the, it's, it's actually track nine, which I suppose in in general terms would be you know the second or third last track yeah. on an album. Let's have a listen to it. Adolescent struggle with the thought of being useless. Wander through the fog, through the forest. Happen on a creature in the dark. And the beast is hungry Figure this one Do that little tough boy look with your jaw Put a little comfort in your walk No, don't look back Keep your head up Breathe And that's uh, Young from Mick Flannery and his new album Good Time Charlie And we were all saying as we listened to that Eamon, that kind of synthy uh, kind of power rock thing is quite unusual for Mick Flannery yeah, really And he, his voice sits beautifully in that kind of almost talk, speak, talk, sing type of quality that he has on that song. It's one of those tracks that makes you sit up and pay attention. And, not, you know, and very few tracks, I think, on this album, unfortunately, do that. In the same way, something like Jose Take Me to uh, to Church, for example, mm. of that kind of big, soulful swell of a chorus that kind of, like, um, uh, sweeps you in. Um, but not quite enough of that kind of calibre. A lot of kind of bluesy rock. Bit too generic. Um Look, there's no doubt the guy's got a great set of pipes. Yeah, you know, he's oh, got, he's you know, there's undeniable. That, yeah, that yeah. low singing there and there are yeah. other tracks, uh, Zara, I'm, I'm trying, yeah, down, uh, uh, there's a song called Give Me Up where he, that wonderful falsetto voice that he, he yeah. uses <laughs> a lot as well. I mean, there's no questioning the, the quality of the voice and the quality of the musicianship here. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you can often kind of dismiss him for having a gravelly voice and very one tone, but I thought Give Me Up showed great range and I think there's times on the opening track as well where he's, his vo- vocals sound actually quite pretty. Yeah. Someone to tell it to also. And I, one thing I did find it quite a lot was how I was constantly noting how strong and how much I admired the richness of the various uh, guitar tones throughout um, and that was something as well there was different bits in each of the songs that really drew me to well, them well that's it because ultimately <coughs> what you're saying is it it was maybe it overstayed its welcome if it had got out quicker you'd have been mm. happier possibly absolutely yeah which is a shame because there is quite a lot of good ideas here and they are executed relatively very well here and he has such a strong band uh, playing yeah. with him so just right. unfortunate that it was one or two too long Alright, stars from you Zara Going to go three And what are you saying Eamon? I would go three as well Fairly solid yeah. three then from both of you for Mick Flannery and Good Time Charlie We also spoke about Race the Night from Ash and The Land is his- Inhospitable and so are we from Mitski and that is our lot for this Monday evening Paula Shields and Leah Murphy Research Ollie Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator Tommy O'Sullivan was in sound tonight and tonight's programme was produced by Sinead Egan I will speak with you tomorrow night once again 7 o'clock here on RTE Radio 1 and Fikna O'Brien will be with you after the news